following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking tonight at 1 Corinthians in chapter 4. And for those of you who have been going through 1 Corinthians with us uh, weekly, the end of chapter 4 marks the end of the first major section of this book. The first four chapters uh, fit together, and we're coming to the end of that. These first four chapters have seen Paul repeatedly come back to his concern over the divisions and quarrels going on within the Corinthian church. If you remember the context here, uh, the Corinthian church, word has come to Paul that the Corinthian church is, is divided. The divisions were going on. Quarrels primarily caused, it seems, by sort of an arrogant pride, uh, particularly on behalf of several of the leaders of the church who seem to be arguing with one another, jockeying with each other for position, followers, advantage, success, uh, they seemed to have felt that they had a level of wisdom that others did not have uh, that allowed them to critique each other and that allowed them to critique Paul. And Paul has repeatedly expressed his concern here. And really, uh, what could set up the context for Paul's concern better than seeing, as Tracy has just shared for us, how the gospel of Christ brings unity from the greatest division imaginable? How heinous is it that people who live in the same town and would normally be friends would become alienated because of their 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 teaching and preaching and, and arrogant false leadership related to the gospel. This is exactly the opposite of what the gospel should do. It's 180 degrees from what we would expect the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to, to bring about. And so I think uh, seeing what we have just seen in the power of the gospel for unity can help us understand Paul's concern and maybe concerns too light, even his, his anger um, at the, the uh, sinful pride of, of these um, these leaders in Corinth. And really over these first four chapters, Paul has sort of laid out layer after layer of argument uh, with the Corinthian church of truths that the Corinthian leaders have forgotten as they, as they have chased this sort of facade of, of success based on their efforts and, and their wisdom. And if we think back over these chapters, we've heard Paul say they've forgotten that the wisdom of the world and its definitions of success are not the same as the wisdom of God. In fact, they're exactly opposed to one another, as he said in chapter 1, such that God chose what is low and despised in the eyes of the world in order to bring about salvation to his people so that, that we might boast only in him. These Corinthian leaders have forgotten that true wisdom comes from the Spirit of God alone and that the natural man who pursues the wisdom of the world is not capable of understanding the wisdom of God. They've forgotten that no human person brings about success when it comes to gospel ministry. God is the one who brings the increase. He brings the growth. And humans are just servants and ministers 
who, who are working out what God has planned and what God is doing. They've forgotten that what they think of themselves and, and the admiration of others around them is of no account. But God alone can acquit and declare innocent and give commendation and praise. And God is the one who brings everything to light and alone judges whether we are guilty or innocent, a success or a failure. They have forgotten that there is nothing, nothing that they have that they did not receive. If you, if, if you, as, as Paul sort of says to the Corinthians in last week's passage, I guess it was two weeks ago, we didn't have service last week, but Paul is sort of weighing out and saying, Corinthians, if you were to take a set of scales and weigh out, you know, what measure of things have, have you accomplished and what measure of things have you received, it, it's not only imbalanced, there is nothing on the side of the scales that they have accomplished and everything that the Corinthian Christians have as, as believers in their Savior, has been given to them freely, has been received by the grace of Christ. They would, they would find that the gracious gifts of God not only far outweigh, but are everything that they have in Christ. Every heart that has been changed, every person that is a member of their community of Christ's people, every hope, every expectation, everything is a gracious gift from God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and the, only, the only response that we have is to fall on our knees and proclaim the glorious salvation of our God and Savior. So, so these are the truths that Paul has been piling up throughout these first four chapters. Truths that build this case that the Corinthian leaders have no uh, ground to stand on. To claim that they have wisdom and status and leadership uh, in, in a way to, that's creating divisions in, in the church. Tonight, um, we're turning to the final section uh, here at the end of chapter 4. And Paul is going to take one more angle to highlight for the Corinthians the, the error of their pride and of their approach uh, to, to Christ and, and his gospel. So if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read beginning in verse 8. All right. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ. 
as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are ignorant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that all scripture, all of your word, is profitable for our teaching, and for reproof, for correction, and for living in godliness. And so we pray that your spirit would work through these words that you have written to make us more and more like you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, a few months ago, a member of our church proudly displayed to me and a few of the teens in our church a sign that he'd been given by his family. Uh, it was one of those signs um, that, that uh, you could hang in, in your office or your room wall. And it, the sign was uh, a, a membership to the National Sarcasm Society. And uh, the motto of the National Sarcasm Society, according to this sign, was, like, we need your support. <laughs> I think uh, the, opening, the opening verses of this passage, Paul has purchased his membership in the National Sarcasm Society. He, he builds up this ironic praise of the Corinthians for achieving these heights of, of wisdom and honor and strength, such that they've even become the kings of the kingdom of God, in phrases that are, are dripping with, with sarcasm. Of course, uh, I would never use sarcasm to point out someone's error. Um, but I think we can understand something of, of what Paul's doing here. One context that comes to my mind is uh, long car rides with junior high boys on retreats. And if you put yourself with junior high boys, you might think about the fact that uh, one thing that, that is often characteristic of, of our younger uh, men is that they're particularly fond of sharing stories of grandeur of things that they've accomplished or, or have done and sort of, so the car kind of bounces around like popcorn of, you know, hey guys, you know, that time I ate 79 peanut butter crackers in math class and the teacher never noticed. You know, I'm an amazing basketball player. You know, and so it goes around and, and they're sort of jockeying with each other for, for who has done the most, most amazing thing. And, uh, at times, I don't know whether it's out of wisdom or exasperation, but I or someone else, and rather than trying to combat or question these statements of amazing feats, we'll just sort of respond sarcastically with the, the implications. And I remember saying something once like, wow, you know, did you hear what Jimmy did? It's utterly amazing and technically, scientifically impossible, but that's incredible that, that he can do that. And sometimes a sort of sarcastic statement makes the person realize their error or the the exaggeration or what they have said in a way that uh, a straight statement may not. I think this is something of the the route that Paul takes in these verses here, particularly verses 8 through 13 of chapter 4. He sort of states dramatically and starkly the implications of what the Corinthians were claiming. Perhaps they didn't claim it in these words, but what they were claiming and the way they were acting was such that they must have everything together as Christians. They must have advanced to a level of knowledge and wisdom that has left so many of their fellow believers uh, behind them. 
they have uh, claimed to sort of have everything. As one commentator said, these Corinthians seem to be claiming to have reached the, the ultimate stage of, of the, the full blessings of, of Christians, of all the wisdom that someone who followed Christ could have. Um, and so Paul's bringing out these sort of outrageous claims and, and the glorified language of praise that Paul uses is, I think, a, a sarcastic expression of, here's the implications of the way you're acting. Here, here is the way your actions play out, Corinthians. Um, and if you notice, he, he pairs this sarcastic uh, sort of explanation of what the Corinthians seem to have been uh, claiming and, and to have achieved with an articulation of what he and the other apostles are going through. And so Paul here pairs this uh, self-sufficiency and success of, of, Christ, of the Corinthian Christians next to his pattern, what he and the apostles are going through, patiently waiting for the kingdom of God while suffering as foolish men, held in disrepute, disrespected, and as he claims, rejected as scum of the world. The refuse of all things. That's a phrase you could say, the garbage heap of all garbage heaps. You see what Paul's saying here. I brought you the gospel, Corinthians, and I am held in disrepute as the scum of the world, and yet you are claiming as if you have all the blessings that one could possibly achieve from Christ. There is a massive chasm between how Paul is acting and how the Corinthians are acting. And Paul uses this, this uh, sarcastic or this exaggerated uh, display of uh, language to help highlight the error behind what the Corinthians were claiming. And it might, it might seem that sarcasm isn't really an appropriate tool for a writer of Scripture, perhaps. Uh, why would Paul and this godly man take sarcastic digs at the Corinthians, isn't that a little underhanded? Because most of us, most of our experience with sarcasm, sarcasm is used to humiliate someone else or sort of get the upper hand. Like, I'm going to get this sarcastic dig at you and everyone will sort of laugh and, and, and mock you over here. And that's how we tend to use sarcasm in our, in our sinfulness. But Paul immediately clarifies in verse 14, after he's used this exaggerated language, he, he says in verse 14, I am not writing these things to humiliate you. I'm not writing these things to embarrass you or to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You see, the, the point of Paul's language here is that he wants to use every argument possible, every tool he can to expose the Corinthians to their sin and help them realize their need to humble themselves and repent, to see the ridiculousness of their error that's causing this break and this division within the community of God's people. Paul is willing to use logic, arguments, and yes, sarcasm, if it will bring healing to the community of God's people in Corinth by correcting the errors of these leaders. And he points out, he says, look, I am your father in Christ. And it's appropriate for me as your father, the one who has given you, the, who, has, who has spoken to you the gospel, to out of my love for you bring correction as well as praise and to show you where you need to become more like Christ. 
And so I think it's important for us to understand here that this, that this language is part of Paul's love. It's not like he's turned to exasperation and just decided to get a few digs in at these guys before he moves on. This is part of his love for these fellow brothers in Christ that motivates this language here. So, so here, is, here is Paul, desiring above all, out of his love for these people, to show them their sin and make them more like Christ. And I think um, I think it's it's clear here and, and elsewhere that that Paul knows there is a risk. There is a risk with using language like this with the Corinthians. There is a risk that they could turn against him rather than receiving his critique with humility. Throughout all four four of these chapters, he knows there's a risk that these Corinthians could uh, reject him, um, could cut him off. Um, but his prayer and his plea again and again is that they would see his heart of love. A heart that longs to expose their error and bring them closer to Christ out of, out of repentance. Well, as, as Paul concludes these four chapters of challenge to the Corinthian Christians, of their, their attitude, their pride, and the division that's resulting, I, I want to just notice three things, three things about what Paul says in these last verses here. Three truths about the gospel and about Christian life that Paul brings out in this passage. First, this is a theme that Paul has come across several times, that he's, he's mentioned a number of times. But first, I think Paul clearly reminds the Corinthians that the Christian life prior to the return of Christ is much more like that of a captive than that of a conqueror. Prior to the return of Christ, the Christian life is much more similar to that of a captive than to that of a conqueror. In fact, Paul, although we might not recognize it right away, is using specific language here in this passage that was typical of prisoners of war or condemned criminals. When Paul uh, talks about uh, the apostles, and he says that God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, like men sentenced to death. Most commentators feel that he's bringing language of the arena where prisoners of war or, or condemned criminals would be brought out near the end of, the, end of the, the show in the arena and sort of paraded around as a spectacle before the audience, before they'd be sent to their death. It was a humiliating walk where they'd be jeered and mocked and put down before they were sent to their death. That of a captive, a condemned criminal is a closer parallel to what Paul says the apostles and those of God's people should expect prior to the coming of Christ. You know, the Corinthian church seemed focused on gaining status, success, uh, honor, uh, status of wisdom, um, followers. But uh, those are things that are sought by and given in this world. Those are things that this world seeks based on its desires and its standards. And those who follow Christ should expect to be considered fools, to be held in disrepute, to be persecuted. Not because they deserve punishment, but because the name of Jesus was held in disrepute, was held to be foolish, and was persecuted. And we should expect nothing different than what our Savior himself walked in. And I think, first of all, this, this should adjust our expectations as followers of Christ. You know, we we have lived in a unique country and a unique era 
in which the derision and suffering and dishonor of clinging to the name of Christ has been at perhaps its lowest point in the history of Christianity in America in the last several hundred years. There is no other place and no other period of history that I can think of um, that quite matches the freedom, in fact, almost approval that we have been given to be followers of Christ. It has not been many years where people would would claim to be followers of Christ. I saw an interesting cartoon recently sort of highlighting this that it said, you know, it was only 20 years ago that you would have your believers and you would have unbelievers, and those in between would side with the believers because that was the more acceptable thing to do. What an unusual thing in the history of God's people that siding with Christ would be the more acceptable thing. That's not typical. Um, of course, even, even in this time, there are certainly uh, opportunities, certainly times, and, and certainly um, occasions where we might have been mocked for our faith in Christ, or, or that the secular pressures around us might lead us into situations where, where there would be a cost to claiming Christ. Um, but, but I think it is important for us to remember that what we have lived through is, is utterly unique. Because the expectation that Paul sets out is that, is that we would be treated as Christ was treated. And that is someone who was persecuted and mocked. You know, we, while we do live at a time when this general acceptance of Christianity has been well known, we also live at a time where this is, is likely changing. And I think, um, it's very likely that in the next, coming decade, we, there will be more and more opportunities where we may be mocked or derided for claiming the name of Christ. And our response should not be shock or outrage. It's, it's so easy when we hear about deliberations of, of courts or of, or of our Congress or, or changes that could impact us. So easy for us to say, how could they do that? That's ridiculous. How, you know, how could they treat you know, some, you know, someone who just wants to worship Jesus? It's very easy for shock and outrage to be our response. And yet I think that Paul says this should be our expectation and that our response is to be patient trust that God will bring his people through whatever opposition, suffering, or mockery we may need to walk through in in our lives. One commentator said this, he said, If Jesus had to tread this path, there can hardly be any other path for us. But that is something that we, like the Corinthians, are most reluctant to accept. That's very true. And, and my point here is not to say that we, we need to judge the faithfulness of our walk with Christ based on how much persecution we go through. That's not what I'm trying to say here. My point is that many Christians seem to respond with a sense of entitlement to, to freedoms of speech and worship and religion and and almost approval for, for what they do. And, and, that's, and that expectation or that sense of entitlement is nothing that Scripture leads us to expect or to feel entitled to. Christ, throughout history, has called his followers to live as scum of the world, and yet he has faithfully walked with his people as scum of the world. So the question really is, will we follow Paul's example Will we cling faithfully to the call and to the commands of our Savior, even if it means we must suffer or sacrifice our reputation, our comfort, or our success in the world? And I think if you could boil down Paul's point here, if you could boil down Paul's call and his picture here, we could say this. Ask ourselves, do we individually and as a church and as as a community of God's people, 
Do we long to talk about Jesus, to obey Jesus, to be challenging and encouraging one another to obey our Savior, and to live in our culture in ways that demonstrate that Jesus is our great passion, our great love, and our great Lord, knowing that at times it will lead us to be considered foolish, even now when it still seems like we're in such a favored time in the history of the earth? Or is there still a remnant? Is there still a remnant of a desire that longs to be recognized, approved, honored, and recognized for success by those around us? That's the question. That as we see these two pictures that Paul paints, scum of the world or arrogant pride, which, which will we side with? The question is, how dearly do we hold the name of Christ? So first, Paul notes that we should expect the lives of those who follow Christ to be more like a captive than a conqueror. Second, Paul reminds the Corinthians that what he is saying, he's saying out of love for them as their father in Christ. And I think Paul's heart comes through so clearly here. The language that Paul is using is a language that's motivated out of a deep desire, a deep love for those whom he has brought the gospel to, whom he has seen Christ work in. He is their father in the gospel. And he states, as he says, as their father, this is verse 15, he says, For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and therefore, he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. Paul's status as, as, his, as the father of these Corinthians is, is to encourage them and call them to follow him and to imitate his example. I think what Paul's doing here is he's helping the Corinthians see that he's not just calling them to follow some sort of abstract theological principle. He's not saying, well, let me talk to you about some abstract principles here, pride and, and division and leadership. He's saying, let me show you in my life, what this looks like. Let's, let's see how this plays out in, in the lives of, of real people. He's calling them to say, this is what it looks like to teach the truth of the gospel and to live the truth of the gospel. Imitate me, for I am your pattern of what it looks like to live out your faith in Christ. And I think what Paul's doing is he's reminding us that Living in community with fellow believers is not a matter of getting together for an hour on Sunday morning to sing a few songs and hear someone talk about Jesus for a half an hour. Living as a follower of Christ and growing in holiness and growing in the character of our Savior is not going to come about from just hearing Dr. Rogers preach a sermon once a week. That's not what Christian community looks like. Christian community looks like living together and having patterns and having people that we can imitate and having fathers in the faith offer examples in lives for younger followers of Christ to imitate and for, for younger followers of Christ to be looking for fathers that they can follow and that they can learn from. Christian community is living amongst one another, imitating, copying, encouraging one another. And those more mature in Christ offering an example for those who are younger to follow. You know, Paul, Paul says, he says that the very purpose for which he sent Timothy back to the Corinthians, he sent Timothy back to them so that, he, they, uh, that Timothy could remind them of his ways in Christ and teach them uh, as, as he teaches them everywhere in Christ. Paul wants Timothy to offer them this fresh vision 
this fresh reminder of what he teaches and how he lives. The picture Paul's painting here is one of a community of believers challenging one another, looking to one another, calling one another to imitate patterns of of teaching, of righteousness, of holiness, of truth, so that as a church we grow together in the likeness of our Savior. I think it's worth worth pointing out um, that it might seem kind of bold for Paul to say, hey guys, just imitate me and you'll be good. Right? Remember, remember that three chapters ago, Paul's whole critique was that some of the leaders were saying, hey, follow me. And so some people were following Paul, and some were following Apollos, and some were following this leader. And so it seems rather odd that Paul would come back and say, hey guys, just imitate me. It seems, is he undercutting the whole message that he's been, been giving? But the answer uh, is no. Paul is not trying to make the Corinthians like him. Paul's not trying to make the Corinthians followers of him or of his teaching or of his pattern. Instead, as Paul reminds them in just a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says again, be imitators of me, but he adds the phrase, as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so what's the picture that we're getting here? We're getting the picture of Christ as the king of his church, the head and the leader of his church, with his people imitating our Savior. And as they imitate their Savior, calling others around them to imitate them, to come alongside them as they all together imitate their Savior. Paul is not calling the Corinthians to imitate him with his fingers pointing at himself. He's calling them to see his fingers pointed at his Savior, saying, look, follow me and look at Christ and who he is and the truth of who he is and what it looks like to live that out. This is the picture of what Christian community looks like. People confessing Christ, whose lives are transformed by Christ, who look to and offer patterns of living like Christ and teaching the truth of Christ. A beautiful picture of a community transformed in every way by the truths and the examples and the patterns of Christ Jesus. Third, lastly, Paul reminds us that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. When you come to the end of the passage here, Paul has just reminded the Corinthians that they should imitate his example as he imitates Christ. But he seems to be worried that some people would say, Paul, yeah, he wants us to act like this, but, you know, who's Paul? He doesn't really care about the church here in Corinth. He's not going to ever come around again. Why should we listen to a guy and do what this guy wants us to do? We may never see him again. And it seems um, that some may have even said, well, look, he didn't even come himself. He sent Timothy. If he's not, you know, if he thinks there's a problem here and he just sends someone else to, to deliver a message and take care of it, yeah, he obviously doesn't care us. He's not coming around. Why should we listen to Paul? And so Paul comes to the end of the section and says, some of you are arrogant, thinking that I am not going to come to you, but I will come to you. I am coming to you, if the Lord wills, and I will find out about these arrogant people whether they are all talk or whether there is power behind what they say. And he adds this comment in verse 20. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In power. You know, Paul comes back to this central truth over and over in his epistles. Just a few chapters earlier, Paul said, The word of the cross is the power of salvation. 
In Romans chapter 1, you may remember when, when he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all people. He tells Timothy that, that God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Over and over again, Paul says that this truth, this, this gospel that we're given, is not just a message, it's not just a book, it's not just words, it is, it is power. It is power to change lives and change people. Here we have the word of God with us. This isn't just a book that we decide to read when we get together. It's not like this is just a, a book of wise principles that's wiser than anything else that we could, could talk about. We preach from this book because it's powerful. Because it contains the power of God. Because the gospel is the thing that changes people. The kingdom of God that the gospel is bringing about comes with power that changes lives, that conquers kingdoms in this world, and that offers real hope in people's lives. There there are so many ways on a day-to-day basis that we can act as if the gospel is just talk and not power. There are so many ways that we can act as if this was not true. When we doubt that reading or preaching or listening to the word of God will really change anything in our lives, we're confining the kingdom of God to mere talk rather than power. When we're lazy about growing in holiness or recognizing our sin or striving for growth and obeying the commands of God, we are treating the kingdom of God perhaps as more just talk and not of power. When we lean on ourselves and our efforts and our goals to accomplish things, even things for God, we are treating the kingdom of God as just talk and not the foundation of power. When we lose sight of the glorious hope Christ promises to his people and we fall into fear or worry or anxiety or we think there's no way that God could could work this situation out, We are believing that the kingdom of God offered in the gospel is more talk and less power. We enter these moments in our lives, what we're really doing is we're doubting or we're not not living by the truth that God's word and the kingdom that his word brings is a kingdom of power. It is not just words. It's not just a message. It is the power of God for salvation. This word changes lives, sustains people, gives hope brings about promises. So as we come to the end of this first section of 1 Corinthians, as we come to the end of these first four chapters of this book, we should, we should come away with the sense of the absolute incomprehensibility, the absolute inconsistency of feeling any ounce of pride in ourselves or in looking down at others or comparing ourselves to others, or in taking any credit for anything good in ourselves or that comes through ourselves. For over and over and over, we've been reminded that everything we have has been given to us. All the sufficiency, all the work, all the growth is God's through the power of his gospel. And apart from the work of his spirit, this would all be foolishness to us. These first four chapters should bring us to our knees in thanks and praise to our Savior. For He is everything. And it's appropriate on that note, as you just scan these last few verses, these last uh, verses that we've looked at, notice how many times Paul talks about the name of Christ as being the foundation for everything he is and does. He talks about being a fool for Christ's sake. 
He is the Corinthians' father in Christ. His ways and teachings that Timothy remind the Corinthians of are in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. For Christ. Everything we have, all that we have is in Christ. And all that we do is for Christ. And so our conclusion here at the end of this first section of 1 Corinthians, at the end of chapter 4, can only be just what Paul said back in chapter 1. No human boasting is possible except in our Lord Jesus Christ. The praise and the glory of our sufficient and powerful Savior. This is what Paul wants us to remember. And this is the truth that will undercut the pride and arrogance that lead to divisions within God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that, as I think of what Paul's done, he, he has not just simply said, don't be proud and don't be arrogant. He has spent four chapters again and again and again reminding us of these truths of who God is, what God has done in Christ Jesus that undercut any possibility of pride in ourselves and force us back to the cross to give all praise and glory to our Savior. And pray that that would be the attitude that dominates our lives, our actions. I pray that that would be the truth that binds our community, that brings unity to your people as we together worship our Savior. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.